But can you give us some background on just like why this is a topic that's become so prevalent? No, I can't. And here's why. I have a child breaking down the door. So I hopefully that didn't pick up too much, but let me get them out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People an informal look at hot topics and neglected issues in bioethics, healthcare, medicine, and society. Basically anything that we, your hosts, find interesting. I'm Tyler Gibb in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Devin Stahl in the slightly less beautiful Waco, Texas. Hey, wait a minute, Tyler. Did you mess with my script? So Tyler, in your work as a clinical ethicist, do you ever run across people who come from religious traditions that have very particular asks of the clinical care team or refuse certain kinds of treatments based on their religion? What comes to mind, there's a couple of kind of religious communities that stereotypically have specific, like you said, asks or refusals regarding medical treatment. So at least the, one of the stereotypical ones is Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Uh So Jehovah's Witnesses in general refuse blood products or products derived from from donated blood. We say whole blood products, right? Yeah, whole blood. And so that plays out sometimes when somebody is has a terrible injury. Ideally, they would get some sort of uh, transfusion or some sort of donated blood. For religious reasons, they refuse that. Yeah, we've had this, um, you know, I, I ended up having this quite a bit in Michigan because Michigan has an, a big Jehovah's Witness population. And so we would actually work with the liaisons is what they call them in the church who would um, help to liaison between the patient who's refusing that whole blood product and the clinical care team to help educate the clinical care team on both why the refusal was happening, but more importantly, alternative methods for things like bloodless surgery which actually has become very innovative mm-hmm. in in no small part to Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. So they had lots of literature that they would provide us um, that was incredibly helpful in order to engage patients who had this belief. And of course, not every Jehovah's Witness agrees with the church on this particular issue. So I always advise medical students or healthcare professionals to ask and to ask that person, preferably alone, what their preference is, because I think you should never assume that simply because somebody's part of a religious tradition that they adhere to every aspect of the tradition's teachings. Yeah. Um, so you always ask, but it can create interesting ethical dilemmas for a healthcare team who relies on blood products for surgery and for other life-saving procedures. Yeah. So Jehovah's Witness is the first one that comes to mind, although by no means is that faith community, the only one that has specific teachings or theology doctrine about medical treatment. So other ones, for example, um, Christian scientists, for example, have specific beliefs or views. Some conservative or Orthodox Christian communities or Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. But we, like you said, we live in very different states. You live in the Republic of Texas. Um, So as you've moved from Michigan to Texas, have you have you seen religion impact medical care or medical treatment decisions in unique ways being in, in Texas? Yeah. And, you know, I, it's funny because I just moved here a couple of years ago and the pandemic has really disrupted a lot of the clinical work that I do. But I do find there is more 
religion in the air, uh, so to speak. So um, one of the hospitals I work in is not religiously affiliated, but has scripture on the wall and most of the healthcare practitioners would consider themselves religious, um, many coming from Protestant evangelical traditions. And I was very unused to that. I felt like in Michigan, folks just didn't talk quite as plainly or clearly about their own religious beliefs in healthcare. So it's been really interesting to adapt to a culture that is much more explicitly religious and, and typically Christian evangelical. And I think that shapes both the way they see themselves as healthcare providers, but also the the ways they're going to interact with their patients, their comfort level with interacting with patients who traditionally tend to be more religious than healthcare providers themselves. It's so interesting how different religion is viewed and treated. And like you said, whether it's in the air or not based upon not only the community that you live in, but also kind of the larger, the state or the region that you live in. So when I was, I lived in California, I've lived in New York, and it was very different from when we lived in Missouri, for example, and Michigan is still a little bit different. So, so today we're going to talk with a friend of ours, Michael Deem, who's an expert in, I would say, the Catholic bioethics specifically, but also he's been writing a lot and, and thinking and, and speaking a lot about vaccines and the Catholic teachings related to vaccines and even more specifically about vaccine mandates. Yeah, so that should be a really good conversation that intersects with both healthcare, public health, and religion some of my very favorite topics. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Professor Michael Deem. Michael Deem is the Associate Professor and Director of the Consortium of Ethics Program at the Center for Bioethics and Health Law and the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So we're happy to have you here today because we really wanted to talk about religious exemptions to particularly, we're thinking about vaccines right now, although there's lots of religious exemptions or conscientious objections that come up in healthcare. But we know that you've been thinking a lot about the ways in which religious exemptions are granted or not granted for people who want to perhaps not get the COVID-19 vaccine that's been kind of all over the news lately. And this is not my area of specialty, although I know our hospitals are dealing with it. But can you give us some background on just like why this is a topic that's become so prevalent? And it seems like so many more people are trying to claim this exemption than it seems they have in the past. Well, it's important because uh, traditionally and historically, U.S. law has taken seriously religious liberty. And since a very early case that established a strong precedent in the courts, for upholding requirements to receive vaccines if one is an adult, Jacobson versus Massachusetts back in 1905, there has been strong resistance, uh, sometimes in the name of religion, sometimes in the name of libertarian pers persuasions, of claims of liberty of conscience, pushing back against compulsory or mandatory vaccine policies that have been handed down from the state. So it's always sort of been there uh, in US legal and social history uh, since that case. It's intensified more recently, I think, with COVID-19, chiefly because from a very early stage of the pandemic, COVID-19, the disease, has been highly politicized. And so I think efforts by the state to impose upon citizens various mitigation efforts, whether it's mask wearing, social distancing, some form 
or degree of economic lockdown has been met with a lot of political and partisan resistance. So it's not altogether surprising that the sort of next phase of mitigation efforts, sort of curb the pandemic, reduce mortality and severe morbidity from COVID-19, namely immunization programs, are, are likewise meeting quite a bit of resistance. So Michael, it sounds like in the United States, there is a commitment to allowing religious freedom, religious expression, the practice of your own religion. So how does this intersect with specifically the vaccine mandates that are coming, not only from individual employers or institutions, but also from the federal government? Yeah, so the question is largely going to turn on to what degree can public policy infringe upon in a reasonable fashion uh, religious liberty. Now, religious liberty, just take a step back, is considered since the time of the founding to be constitutive, constitutive value of a, of a democratic society. And so, at least legally speaking, there's always been some trepidation, some caution with respect to when the government may legitimately infringe upon an individual's exercise of their religious identity via belief and action. And uh, there have been, of course, many cases in which the free exercise of religion has been curbed to some degree by legal policy, but there's a very strong precedent of protection of religious liberty. We can think about cases like Yoder versus Wisconsin, which protected an Amish community's uh, rights to educate children uh, on their own after they have completed roughly I think, the uh, eighth grade, the equivalent of eighth grade education. And so there's a there's a strong accommodationist trend in our, in our in our um, legal history in the U.S. With respect to vaccines, it's it's no different. It's um, there has been quite a bit of accommodation historically for individuals and communities that object on religious grounds to uh, vaccine mandates. And this goes back to the earliest requirements for vaccines, as I mentioned earlier, smallpox. But I think it really started to pick up steam when the polio vaccine was mandated and eventually DTaP and MMR, there have been strong accommodationist strains in our legal system to protect individuals, parents, families, and communities from violating their conscience with respect to receiving vaccines. Now, we're really seeing this intensify now. So in the last week, there was an important Supreme Court move where the court decided not to take up a emergency appeal of a group of clinicians this case is John Doe's one through three, the Mills, which was just decided by the Supreme Court last week, uh, not to take up their appeal to a main statute that requires healthcare workers who are in close proximity to patients to accept the COVID-19 vaccine. Surprisingly, the Supreme Court decided not to take up that case, kicked it back down to Maine, and that statute now holds as constitutional and not constituting a unreasonable burden on the healthcare professionals. And their appeal was largely framed in terms of a violation of religious liberty, that it violated their free exercise of religion under the First Amendment. So I think that now we're really going to see a proliferation of cases, legal cases, and legal challenges to vaccine mandates generally, but especially employer mandates that are requiring employees to be vaccinated. So it's been a big week, both with respect to vaccine approval, but also legal responses to challenges on the grounds of religious liberty to employer mandates. There's a lot there we need to un unpack and kind of walk through step by step, I think. But 
you know, we're recording this in, you know, the first week of November, 2021. And so, you know, who knows what the future holds, but before we get into kind of the details of what the Supreme Court did and what the implications are for that, first, uh, just a general question under the law, how is religion even defined? Because I think that's one of the, the big concerns that at least employers have to wrestle with is if somebody is making a claim that their religion is being violated or the exercise of their religion is being violated, how do we define what a religion is? Yeah, so uh, that's an important conceptual question, and I don't think we have it resolved. So I, I, see, I see the problem with religious exemptions really turning on two issues. So supposing that the state were to make some sort of accommodation for persons expressing religious objections to mandatory vaccines, whether we're talking about challenges like we saw uh, at the level of employment in Maine, the case we just referred to, or if eventually we get to a point where, say, COVID-19 vaccines are mandated for you know, children or even adults, which would be very unusual for it to be uh, mandated for adults, but there is precedent historically for mandated vaccines for adults. And that is the definition of religion. Uh, I don't think we have a uniform or universal answer that's acceptable. If we define it too, in too broad a scope in terms of fundamental beliefs that give a person meaning or orientation to life, well, that seems overly broad and not distinctive of what we tend to think of religion. But if we get too narrow, then we have the problem of equality of expression of religion, another important protection in a liberal democracy. And that is to ensure that a sort of majority doesn't determine the scope and protections of religion to the exclusion of, say, minority practitioners of religion, communities of, uh, of, of faithful whose uh, religious expressions may not fit within, say, the majority definition. So some really difficult conceptual problem that we see punted time and again. So I, I agree that there's a really difficult conceptual question that the state has to deal with whenever it provides religious accommodations. It's a scope question, but it's also a content question. What constitutes religion and what falls outside of that scope of religion by definition? Another problem which you didn't hint at, but it's, it's also looming, is the sincerity question. So supposing there are some religious accommodations whether it's with vaccines, whether it's with conscription for you know, fighting in wars, education policy, is it the state's job to adjudicate claims of religion when objections uh, are issued to vaccine policy? So is the state competent to determine whether or not a citizen is being sincere in requesting a religious exemption from a vaccine? Uh, I don't think it is. I think that wouldn't just be a mess you know, bureaucratically, but I just don't think that that would be the role for a, a state to do, to, to engage in. And that seems to be something that's going to be determined at a much lower level, right, at the level of community. And so one problem we have with, with uh, the case of sincerity versus insincerity is the sort of exploitation of any sort of religious exemption policy that persons, if they're not held to task, if they don't have to show proof of any sort of religious commitment, then we may end up providing more exemptions than we want. And that could then militate against maybe the point and purpose of vaccine policies and mandates, namely the generation of herd immunity. If we grant too many exemptions, if we make religious exemptions very broad, then we risk undermining the very public good we're promoting with those policies. So two big problems, the conceptual problem and the sincerity problem. Yeah. And so just to go back to the case in Maine, the way that the statute was crafted in the state of Maine was that it did not permit or did not allow for religious accommodation based exemptions to their 
mandate. Is that correct? Right. And so uh, people object to that, claiming that there ought to be protections for religious-based requests for exemption mm-hmm. and you know, challenge that in the law. And the Supreme Court had the opportunity to reinforce the, the principle or the idea that there is a, by law, a requirement that religious-based exemptions be accommodated, and it declined to do so meaning that the state law was able to stand as written, right? Did I, did I get that right? Right. So the, the Maine allows healthcare institutions to mandate that their, their employees who come into close contact with patients uh, are vaccinated. And it's not just COVID-19. There are a number of vaccinations that uh, they must accept. And so, right, that was the law that the Supreme Court did not take up and consider. And so that Maine statute that allows healthcare employers to mandate certain vaccines stands. Uh, what's interesting is Maine is one of a handful of states, I think there are six states right now, that uh, for childhood immunizations do not permit any kind of non-medical exemption. Maine uh, does not permit religious exemptions or what are sometimes called philosophical or personal belief exemptions. So this is sort of keeping in line with the state of Maine's overall approach and attitude towards religious exemptions and vaccination. Of course, the important difference here is that in the John Doe's 133B Mills case, these are adults and this is a, an employer-based policy rather than, say, a state mandate for childhood immunizations. But it certainly is keeping in the spirit of Maine not uh, permitting religious exemptions to vaccines. Michael, can you help us understand kind of what some of the religious objections are? You mentioned at the beginning that a lot of this is very political. But I imagine some people, especially if we have to bracket out politics, do have an actual sincere religious objection to vaccines or various other kinds of, of health care they don't want. I know you work a lot in Catholic bioethics, maybe some of the Catholic objections to the vaccine, mm-hmm. as well as maybe some broader religious objections that you've heard coming out. Yeah, yeah, starting with the latter, I mean, there, there are uh, survey studies of, of persons of various religions that looks at questions surrounding adherence attitudes towards vaccinations. So we know that there are some communities of Muslims, there are some Amish communities that just object to vaccination overall, not any particular vaccine, on the basis that it thwarts God's will. It's not all Muslims, it's not all Amish More recently, what's coming to head in my religious tradition, which is Catholicism, is uh, sort of a um, rehabilitation of an older objection to the way in which certain vaccines are manufactured or tested. This is an objection on the basis of the use of fetal cell lines that were derived from the tissue of electively aborted fetuses from decades ago. So in my particular religious tradition, Catholicism, the magisterium, which is sort of the teaching body of the church, addressed an inquiry back in 2005 from the United States, asking whether or not it was morally illicit for parents to accept, Catholic parents to accept uh, the rubella vaccine, right? So that would be the R on the MMR vaccine, because fetal cell lines that were derived from the tissue of aborted fetuses were utilized in the development of that vaccine. And so there appears to be some remote connection to a past elective abortion. That's how that cell line was uh, derived. And of course, as you probably know, at least in terms of official Catholic moral teaching, abortion is considered morally wrong. And so the question 
largely turns on whether or not one is complicit in accepting a vaccine that is somehow linked to a past abortion. The church issued a, a number of different statements, one in 2005 through the Pontifical Academy for Life, again in 2008 from the major teaching office of the Catholic Church, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 2008, and then a couple follow-up statements there telling Catholic parents that all things considered, the responsibility to promote the common good and to protect the individual health of children, right, from vaccine-preventable, highly deadly diseases, outweighs whatever complicity there may be in the very remote connection between the vaccine and this, these previous elective abortions. So what seemed to be an issue that was resolved came has come back to a head fiercely at the end of 2020 and end of 2021 with the COVID-19 vaccines. So currently there are three that are authorized in the United States, two for emergency use, and one has normal FDA approval. All of them have a similar connection as the rubella vaccine does to fetal cell lines. So the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for COVID-19 and the Moderna vaccine were both uh, tested after they were developed on HEC-293 cells, which are fetal cells from a cell line that was derived from an abortion, elective abortion, I believe, in the Netherlands from maybe the 1960s or so. And the Johnson & Johnson uh, and the AstraZeneca, which is not approved or authorized in the United States, utilize fetal cell lines as well in the manufacturing process to grow a virus. And they use in their vaccines with a different mode of delivery from the mRNA vaccines with Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech. All that is to say, all of the vaccines that are authorized for either emergency use or have normal approval from the, from the FDA or whatever the relevant governmental oversight body is in, in countries around the world, all of those vaccines have some connection to fetal cell lines, either via testing after development or via production. And so there are many Catholics now who are raising the concern again that if these vaccines are mandated at the level of state, or if employers are allowed, like we saw with uh, Maine, employers are allowed to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for their employees, that this will constitute a serious violation of religious liberty, namely a Catholic identity and a Catholic belief that abortion is wrong and requiring these Catholics to participate in some way in uh, the evil of uh, abortion, in their view. Interestingly enough, it's going to be the same framework uh, from the church's view, and indeed the church has released authoritative statements on this from, from their teaching bodies that reiterate the earlier response to concerns about the rubella vaccine for, for, for kids. And that is that considerations of the common good, social justice considerations, uh, and individual health benefits uh, outweigh the very remote material cooperation that accepting these vaccines has with the elective abortions. So it sounds like the, the official position of the church is at least supportive and probably encouraging of vaccine. Um, but if I were a, a Catholic and I maybe disagreed with that, would I would that be okay within the framework of the church if I had, you know, a, a well-formed conscience, for example? Yeah, yeah, this is a really a difficult issue. And there are some uh, Catholic bioethicists who are arguing about this right now. So Jason Eberle at St. Louis University and Joshua Hochschild over at Mount St. Mary's arguing about this very issue now. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll show my cards a bit too on this matter. So I think there are two questions we can ask, or at least two issues. One, is it 
a sincere Catholic objection rooted in sort of a substantive religious belief. For a Catholic who is sincere about their Catholic faith, it looks like the moral tradition of Catholicism strongly supports the view that not only is it permissible to accept a vaccine, but it's a moral responsibility. So it could be a, some sort of defeasible moral obligation, right? It's a very strong prima facie duty to accept the vaccine. However, there is a little wiggle room here for somebody to object because the church has also said that acceptance of vaccines should be voluntary and that for reasons of conscience, as you mentioned, Tyler, a Catholic may refuse the vaccine permissibly but they have an obligation to continue to form their conscience, as you said. So it's not just my conscience tells me no, it's rather, am I properly informed my conscience? And there really are going to be two sources, right, for informing your conscience on this matter if you are giving a religious exempt, uh, objection as a Catholic. One would be, what does your church's moral tradition say? What do its official teachings say? And there it says that there is no strong reason to refuse the vaccine. The other question would be, am I working with facts? Am I appealing to expert testimony about, say, the threat of COVID-19, the safety and efficacy of the vaccines? Am I informing my conscience also by good information, right? And this is another issue that's, of course, coming to a head now in the public sphere, the crisis of trust in science and expertise. So I would ask whether or not a conscientious objection from a Catholic is stemming from a true substantive belief rooted in the Catholic moral tradition and well-informed by science and relative experts, or if it's just sort of this procedural issue, and that's the second issue that I, I, I foreshadowed there, and what you bring up, Tyler, is just that my conscience tells me no, and that's all I need. Well, that's not a substantive Catholic objection to the vaccine. That's procedural. And there's nothing it's distinctively Catholic about saying, well, my conscience tells me no. And so one worry would be that if your conscience is not turning out a practical decision informed by the Catholic moral tradition and the best science we have, well, then it doesn't look like it's an actual religious uh, objection at all. And indeed, there have been bishops in the United States, for example, the Archdiocese of New York, who have told their priests, stop advising and granting or writing notes for Catholics who want to object on, their, on the basis of their Catholic faith to accepting a vaccine if it's mandated, say, by their employer. And this opens then the question about well, what's unique about a religious exemption then? Should a religious exemption be tied to a sincere, substantive religious belief? Or can we just say, yeah, more procedurally, you know, whatever comes out of your conscience, whether or not it's junk in, junk out, conscientious objection is a conscientious objection. But then you may not really have any legitimate reason to privilege religious objections to vaccine mandates. That looks more like a, some sort of exercise of liberty that's, that's, you know, untethered to any particular religious view. And so I think that's where we're at with the Catholic debate now. And I sort of showed my cards there that I just, I don't think that there's a true substantive Catholic objection to accepting the COVID-19 vaccines. I think Catholics who are sincerely objecting are really just giving a proxy objection that for some other underlying social or political value could be concerned about vaccine passports, could be about infringement upon individual liberties by coercive government policy. I'm not sure that there really is such a thing anymore as a sincere Catholic objection to the COVID-19 vaccines. 
that's to say nothing about other religious traditions. Good. So, Michael, do you have any advice then for, you know, I know Tyler's doing some of this work, ethicists and chaplains are doing some of this work when they're trying to look at people's appeals to religious exemptions, especially for vaccine mandates that apply to healthcare workers. What are they looking for and how are they supposed to assess both sincerity of the belief and its religion? rootedness. Please, Michael, I'm in tears about how to apply this stuff (laughs) for the various organizations, institutions that I consult with. So, you know, I I don't think anybody really would have the expertise to sit on one of these boards, one of these committees, or even the level of the state or a county health department to adjudicate among religious exemptions, request religious exemptions on, on grounds of sincerity. So I think that one thing to avoid is, is any sort of measure to determine whether or not people are sincere. I think it would behoove persons like you, individuals who serve on such committees or boards, not to worry about whether or not a request is sincere, but to make it more difficult to obtain. So I don't see why employers don't follow what many states uh, have enacted to make it more difficult to obtain an exemption, a non-medical exemption from a vaccine, you might require some sort of documentation, whether it's from an authoritative member of a religious community. But then again, now we're starting to hedge towards a certain kind of favored structure of religion, right? Having people who are authorities within that religion, but that might be one way to go about making it more burdensome. And that may indirectly say something about the sincerity of the objector or some sort of documentation from uh, a clinician that a certain conversation took place or that certain information was given. And that would probably be a wiser, I think, uh, way to determine whether or not somebody is sincere, not just with with a religious exemption, but really any conscientious objection, right? Whether it's religious or not, it could just be moral. There are studies that suggest that persons who are sincere and feel themselves to be psychologically or emotionally burdened by following certain statutes or policies, uh, will go through more hoops. They will they will do more. They will work harder. They will take on more burdens to get an exemption from a particular policy or statute than those who are, say, less sincere. So that could be one way in which you're sort of indirectly putting your finger on the pulse of sincerity without having sincerity councils, right? Or sincerity boards that are going to try to peer into the hearts and minds of persons seeking exemptions. Inevitably, though, even then, you will still get people through the exemption process who are insincere, at least in principle, right? Because we're counting on religious authorities or clinicians to be honest if they were to sign some document or write some note on behalf of that person. But it's one way to make it a little bit more difficult, and it might cut back on the number of exemptions. But unless we're prepared to eliminate altogether non-medical exemptions, not just at the state level, but you know, at the employee level for any vaccine... Um, we're going to have to find some way to accommodate, whether it's religion and personal belief, or we just eliminate that distinction and talk about, say, moral objections, right, or conscientious objections to vaccine policies. Um, we're going to get people through who are not sincere in their objections. But there are always going to be free riders and there are always going to be exploiters who will, if they have sufficient drive and motivation, will get through that process. And that, like I said, that might be the cost for the importance of protecting 
uh, religious identities or conscientious objections. Why do we favor religion specifically? I mean, you know, arguably, religious people would claim that you know religion really fixes in an important way their personal identity and organizes their values. Somebody who's non-religious might say, well, certainly my commitment to you know human rights or animal welfare is really fundamental to my identity as well. So it might have to just be an existential question. Does religion in some special way constitute a person's practical commitments and identities in a way that other sorts of practical identities do not? And in that case, uh, maybe it is more burdensome on the whole for religious people to have to violate their conscience, right? More difficult psychologically and emotionally insofar as religion structures those values and that practical identities. But I think historically, we've also taken religion seriously because it protects minority communities. So the neutrality of the state and the desire of the state to protect the free exercise of religion for any citizen is always going to be jeopardized by majorities, majority populations that come into power. So one thing that religious exemptions can do with the case of vaccines and religious accommodations more generally in the laws can protect minority populations of particular religions that are not common. I think that's such a good point, Michael. And I hadn't thought of it that way, that religious protections or religious liberty claims do protect minorities in a special way. I think because a lot of us think of these objections coming out of really large religious groups, maybe evangelicals or Catholics, which make up a huge percentage of our religious population in this country. Um, and we are less likely to think about the Amish and less likely to think about other minority religions that might be adversely impacted or minority groups who happen to belong to you know, religious groups disproportionately. So I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being with us and explaining all of that. We'll be sure to upload um, links to other talks that you've given, radio, print, um, on our website. So folks should be sure to check that out. But uh, thanks for helping at least to make some sense out of what seems to be a very contentious issue right now. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. For more information about today's episode, show notes, and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork, and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here. You record these conversations, then you edit them, right? So that everybody sounds coherent and somewhat intelligent. <laughs> smart. Yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, actually, we just edit ourselves to sound smart and edit uh. you to sound not as smart as. Yeah, yeah. Well, because typically our guests are smarter than we are. So we're just trying to balance out. Yeah, it's, it's normalizing yeah. behavior. <laughs>